Welcome to My Limited View with Sergio Novoa and Vanessa Wilkins, where we share stories and expand our views. I flirt with my therapist. Stop giving your love. This one time on Muni, your parents love you. He was my first. Life is good. It felt like home. Secrets. We all have a story. What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? All right, you guys, welcome back to My Limited View. Once again, we have our special guest tuning in from San Francisco, Jupiter. Hey, everyone. How Y'all are thought you? you saw the last of me. <laughs> I'm here again. How, how is everyone doing? How are you? I am good. She is back and better than ever, huh? Mm-hmm. I the, sure am. After the election, how do you, how, how do you feel about the outcome? I want to say I am very satisfied with the outcome. Um, it was very nerve-wracking for me leading up to the election, especially on election day, because the special thing about this election is that, you know, we weren't going to know the results the day of. And I want to say that, um, you know, election day and the days following that were just the most intense um, anxiety-inducing days I've ever experienced in my entire life. Um, And of course, because of the COVID pandemic, a lot of the people that voted in this election voted via mail. Uh, So, you know, the days that, you know, ballots were being counted, uh, you know, we definitely saw Joe Biden's um, rising in the polls in some states that we didn't even think that he was going to win in. For example, Georgia, Pennsylvania, the way that he just came and grabbed Pennsylvania just blew me away. Uh, Pennsylvania was out of my radar. I did not expect that we were going to win that. But as the days were coming, you know, as the days were rolling by and the votes um, and the ballots were rolling in, the lead that Joe Biden took in Pennsylvania was definitely very reassuring. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I am very, um, I'm very satisfied with the results, but, you know, as Joe Biden's victory settling in, you know, there is still a lot of opposition. Donald Trump has still refused to concede. And that, of course, is giving me a lot of, you know, it's causing me um, a lot of anxiety. Um, It's, you know, making me very nervous. So I'm just trying to process and sort of like plan what comes next and how we can make sure that, you know, Joe Biden for sure takes the presidency come January uh, 21st in inauguration day. And not only that, making sure that in Georgia, when they have the runoff election, which is January 5th, everyone. January 5th, everyone, make sure you vote. If you're in Georgia, if you're listening, uh, make sure that you re-register to vote. Um, I think the deadline is December 7th and the election is January 5th. I'm doing a lot of research on Georgia right now. Did you know that Georgia is notorious for its runoff elections? Since the 1960s, since the 1960s, Georgia has had eight runoff elections. And Democrats have not won many or most of them. It's always been a Republican who's taken over. Exactly. Democrats have only won one of those eight runoff elections. And you know why? It's because there is a lot of voter suppression in Georgia right now. Um, Georgia, the Georgia runoff law uh, was put in place to make sure that uh, white politicians remain in power and to make sure that black politicians do not, you know, take over and have the advantage um, of the votes in Georgia. So their um, voter suppression in Georgia in this runoff election is definitely a racial issue. So we'll talk about it later. And the other thing, too, when it comes to voter suppression, it's a, a conversation I had with a friend of mine. It's not even so much like what's happening in Georgia or other states, but even here in California, when you think of the initiatives and the way they're written and the way uh, people are supposed to be informed on all the issues, 
they don't make that easy. I mean, Prop 8 is a perfect example. Voting no on Prop 8 was being in support of same-sex marriage. But the way it was written, you thought by voting yes that you were supporting it. No, yes means, yes, we want sex to be between a man, uh, marriage to be between a man and a woman. So there needs to be something implemented where things have to be written in such simplistic terms that anyone with the basic knowledge of English can read it and understand it. Um, of course. Yeah, yes, that's the other you know, thing that I, that I found surprising too. Like, you know, California is supposed to be progressive, but when you think of the whole um, Uber Lyft proposition, when you think of how much money Uber, Lyft, Postmates, all these companies put in to make sure they got what they wanted, you have to stop and ask yourself, wait a minute, is this really good for the people when you think about it? And of course, I don't want to harp on anyone who has limited means and this is the only way they can earn an income. By all means, I understand that. But it is unfortunate that they are in a way being taken advantage of because they're not being provided any kind of benefits. You know, the wear and tear on your body from driving and on your car, you're not making enough money to cover all of that. Not to mention you're getting 1099s. So if you're not clever on how to budget for that, you're going to get screwed at the end of the year when you do your taxes and you haven't paid taxes for a year. So it's, I was like, California is progressive, but really, are we progressive? You know, you mm-hmm. have to start questioning. So, but we are having you back because when we spoke last time, you mentioned that you were transgender. That was the other thing that kind of scared you about DACA being taken away because you are so reliant on the benefits you get while living in this country. When did you start having an inkling that, hmm, I'm not like the other boys? It's it's It started off very, very early in my life. I am Mexican. So, you know... It's very common in Mexican households that, you know, religion is sort of like the defining force in your entire household, in your entire family. When I was growing up in Mexico, I was definitely surrounded by a lot of masculinity, a lot of, you know, that toxic masculinity that manifests machismo in the way that you know women are sort of like forced to take on these gender roles of being a housewife of being a mother of being at home and not having a job and blah 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 and you looked at that and you thought i want that you said to absolutely not i said uh-uh. <laughs> I was like, I she's like you know that. what i think i want that <laughs> let me stay home and not honestly work. <laughs> honestly like th- you know, this dress fits fabulous and these heels are amazing, but that does not mean that I want to stay home and cook. <laughs> but anyway, uh, fast forward to, you know, me being in the United States and, you know, growing up here in the U.S., it was definitely a culture shock. Not until I lived here in the United States was I exposed to how prevalent uh, sort of like queerness was here in the United States. When I was growing up in Paramount, I was still very much surrounded by that hyper masculinity, that hyper um, heterosexuality. I mostly, um, I went to a high school that was mostly Hispanic. There was still that toxic masculinity in the air and, you know, in friendships and like, you know, relations between, you know, student to student. And even then in high school, I, I knew that I was different and I knew that, you know, I was attracted not to women. 
of course. Um, and it was very hard for me to accept this. I, I very much grappled with this. I am a theater kid. I am a thespian. So being involved in theater really opened my eyes to sort of expression and being more in touch with identity. But it wasn't until I moved to San Francisco, I would go to the Castro with my little fake ID. Don't say nothing. I was about 18, you know, which 19. still using. <laughs> which I am still using, by the way. Um, I would go to the Castro and I would go to Badlands and I would go to Toad Hall and I would go to, you know, Midnight Sun in the mix. And I knew that this was supposed to be a place where I would consider my community, you know, being surrounded by other, um, you know, gay men. But even still, I did not feel at home. And the tea is that, you know, in the gay community, there is still a lot of toxic masculinity. There is still a lot of that sort of, you know, you can't be femme because you are not desirable. You are not wanted. And it's funny because as I tell my story to people, they're like, girl, really? You really equate the Castro to, you know, the gay community and acceptance and liberation? Like, no, absolutely the not. Gay the gay living in the Castro or what, whatever city you live in, and whether it's Boys Town, Chelsea, whatever it is, wherever the gays are, yeah, living in that community, it's actually very damaging. And mm -hmm. you have a really warped version of what reality is. And like in the straight world, what's at the top of the food chain? The tall, good looking white man. And then under that is everyone else. So if you happen to be Asian, Black, Latino, or whatever else, you're this exotic thing they want to play with. You look at all the magazine covers, most of them, again, a white, good looking, muscular guy. And again, we're not saying that every white person's bad by no means, but you have this rude awakening when you enter the Castro, you think it's a welcoming community. It's not. If you don't look a particular way, if you're not masculine mm -hmm. enough, if you're not mm -hmm. this, if you're not that, there's so much internalized homophobia within Absolutely. the community that they attack each other, dismiss each other. I went through that phase when I first came out. I thought, wow, you think that there's going to be this welcoming thing and there isn't. Everyone wants to fuck you. That pretty much is what it boils down to. If you happen to be cute, they want to fuck you. They don't care. They're not interested. And I mean, that's what men are, period, gay or straight. You know, there's a hole they want to stick it in. So yes. how old were you then when you woke up one morning and thought, hmm, I don't feel that I'm <laughs> in the right body? Um, I want to say that after I realized that the Castro was not my community, um, I definitely started exploring other places of the city. For example, I became a frequent goer um, to the stud. Uh, which, Great. You oh know, my God, that was one of the best was, bars. Yeah, this iconic bar in San Francisco, which unfortunately uh, closed due to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which I am very sad that it did. But, you know, the stud, I really met sort of like my queer and trans community there. They were balls at, at the stud, a lot of drag performances, a lot of people that, you know, definitely were out of the box. And for me, you know, um, I, I always say that my, the way that I connected with my queerness and just sort of expressing myself outside of the box was through fashion. Um, I started working for this uh, resale clothing store. You know, having access to clothes and having access um, to sort of like this other world of uh, creativity and imagination was 
not something that I ever expected. You know, growing up in Mexico, I definitely fantasize about material things. And when I worked at this place, I have so much access to clothes that I started experimenting with just sort of the way that I look, with the way that I felt. And I met a lot of the people that were very much like me at these clubs, at the Stud, at El Rio, at um, on Charlie's, which, you know, is also this iconic trans bar in the Tenderloin district. And it wasn't there that I started making friends with people that were trans. And when I started, you know, when I befriended these people and when I really went into deep conversations with them about what it meant to be trans and how they felt and their path and their journey, it really sort of like clicked in my mind. I was like, wow, I was, you know, I very much relate to this, you know, to this person. It was through there, it was sort of like a gateway that I came to realize that I myself was trans. And, you know, I never knew any transgender people until I moved to San Francisco. Um, you know, growing up in LA, I was still very much enclosed in sort of my thinking. And it wasn't until I moved to this wonderful city that I discovered all the wonderful trans people and you know, their lives and their stories of courage and bravery. And it definitely inspired me to be myself. And I was very lucky that, you know, when I realized that, I worked in this place that really encouraged um, self-expression, that really encouraged um, sort of, you know, taking on this unique identity. And if, if it wouldn't have been for, you know, my workplace, which is very important in San Francisco, because it's very expensive, and you need to make a living somehow. And having that, and having that access while still being myself was just an incredible opportunity that really led me to who I am now and to sort of take on this path of making sure that I have you know, my gender affirmation. And it, it was definitely that sort of like snowball effect that led me to where I am, which is a proud transgender woman of color and undocumented. So this means you're really high risk because oh, women really of color risk. are always oh, yeah. being, they're, you know, they're attacked and all this other stuff. So I do want to bring up a point. So prior to you moving to San Francisco and being around people that were trans and unique, you had no concept of yourself. Because I remember being six years old and having a crush on a, a boy in class. I didn't know what gay was, but I was fascinated yeah. by him. I wanted to touch his shoulders because that's what six-year-olds do. So even though I didn't know the word gay, at a very young age, I had displayed attributes of like, oh, he might be special one day. How old were you when you started to realize that you might be transgender? Um, I, you know, this was just a couple of years ago. This was when I first turned 21. When I started exploring more with my gender identity, when I started exploring, you know, what really changed for me was having the words to describe what being trans was. Um, at school, I really took a lot of... Um, a lot of ethnic studies classes, a lot of sexuality classes, a lot of, you know, gender studies classes. And that really opened my eyes. It really expanded my vernacular. It, it expanded my language to describe sort of like who I was and what I was feeling. And if it wouldn't have been for those lessons, for those classes that I took, I probably wouldn't even, you know, come close to describing how I felt. 
But I definitely did feel, even as a gay man, I did feel very restricted and very limited. Although I identified as gay, I told myself, I do not relate. I do not, you know, this isn't me. It's, it's, it's not sort of, uh, you know, I can't compute being gay and being who I am. It's just, it doesn't make sense to me. It still didn't click. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I took these classes and I met these people and I explored new places that it really started to come together and it made sense and it really reassured me. It was like a light bulb to me. Based on what you just said, some people will tell their children, don't hang around that gay person because I don't want you to catch the gay. They think yeah. that by simply being around or exposed to that they're going to catch it, which is not how it works because I've been around straight people my whole life and I never caught the straight bug. Oh, exactly. But so now we, I'm sure someone listening who maybe leave this is going to say, wait a minute, he was okay until he got around people that were like that. They're going to maybe come to the conclusion that you would have never walked down this path had it not been for the fact that you were exposed to it. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, even you said earlier that taking these classes and being exposed to this gave you the vocabulary to be able to express and identify how you felt. What do you think would have happened had you not done that? Would you have ever reached that? Is it exposure? Is it you would have been a late bloomer? Like, have you ever thought about that? I mean, I definitely would have been a late bloomer. There were many instances in my young life that I experienced uh, things that definitely um, influenced and informed sort of why I said a couple years ago, I am trans. When I was very young, I want to say about three, four years, you know, it was my mom caught me a couple times, you know, wearing her shoes, you know, putting on makeup and, you know, wearing her clothes. And it was then that my mom definitely started, you know, oh, you know, there's definitely something different with my child. And of course, it manifested in different ways. Uh, as I grew older, I, I loved wearing my mom's shoes. My mom had like a closet full of high heels. And I was like, I love this. I'm going to try them on. a Latina woman with a closet full of high heels? What are you talking about? Never heard of that. <laughs> Girl, my, my mom loved going out. My mom loved going to the bailes. So, so there were signs when you were younger that you looking back, knowing what you know now, were signs that maybe you felt you were, now we have a popular term that I did not grow up with, non-binary, you know, uh, gender expression, and all these terms that I did not have. So it would have just been you a kind of a late bloomer. And even like non-binary is completely different than being transgender. I feel like non-binary, it's just, you, you do not relate to either or, you know, to any other genders. Um, and with, you know, there's definitely this conversation that I always have with my my trans and my uh, gender non-binary friends is that, you know, when you're transgender, uh, it's sort of like you are switching over to this other, to sort of like the opposite gender, but it's also like, well, wait, there aren't two genders. There are many more. And I feel like when I had this conversation that I was transgender with my parents, I definitely had to talk to them about how gender was a social construct and how uh, gender was, um, was sort of like created to make us think about sort of like who we need to be as women 
whether it's mothers, whether it's like, you know, housewives, in contrast, who men need to be, which is the, you know, the money makers who the men are the ones that put bread on the table, the men are the ones that like put a roof over our head. And I definitely started deconstructing these things for my parents, which is, you know, in a Latin community, because in the Latin community, not to generalize for every Latino, but historically, the man's the breadwinner, the woman's the caretaker. And it's, you know, I remember growing up and being with my grandmother and seeing behavior, it's instilled in you at a very young age. The man's a man, man doesn't cry, man is a provider, man is this, he's macho, he can do everything. And the woman is subservient and a caretaker and a caregiver and a nurturer and a mommy. And it's like, it is very difficult to break those. I remember when I went to a party with my relatives and I saw every woman serve a plate to their husband. I hate that. And I remember thinking, what the hell? And my little sister was with me. And I remember thinking, I hope she never feels that she has to do that. Now, if you want to show your affection to your man, however you want to knock yourself out. But when that is the role that is displayed at a young age, it creeps into your mind. And you think that that's what you have to do. How was it coming out to Did you come out to your parents as gay? And what was that like? Yeah, you know, the thing, you know, it, it, it was actually harder to come out to my parents as gay than it was to come out to my parents as trans. As a Latino person, I can relate to coming out as yeah. gay. It is not an easy thing. Yeah. Folks, it is not easy. Whatever you've heard, take that and multiply it by a thousand. There's so also for me, the guilt being brought up Catholic. How can you tell me that God loves me and made me and that I'm wonderful and yet tell me that I'm also a sinner? Which I already saw as a problem when I was about eight years old. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. Perfect, but yet I'm a sinner. Like what? Turns out I'm yeah. a, I'm a perfect exactly. sinner. <laughs> yes, perfect sinner. That sounds like a Madonna song. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's, I know exactly what song you're talking about, but it's not it. A beautiful sinner, I think. Beautiful I'm sinner, a yeah. Sinner. Um, <laughs> we'll put that show in the note. We'll put that song in the show notes. Yes. Um, so, how was it coming out to them? How old were you when you came out to your parents? When I came out to my parents as gay, I had just turned 19. It was the summer after my first year in college. And it's funny because I told my aunt first. My aunt, you know, I have a very strong relationship with her. My aunt is my mom's older sister, and she's always been more open and more receptive. She's been more open-minded. And I went to her first because, you know, I was very scared um, about how my parents would react. And the reason why I believe I was scared was because I didn't really have the words to describe what I was feeling in regards of being gay. When, When I knew that I was trans and when I knew that I needed to explain this to my parents, it came easier for me because it felt more in touch. It felt more natural. It felt more honest for me to do this. I read for months and months and months articles in Spanish because I really wanted to garner the right words um, in the right vocabulary to to express my transness and what being trans meant to my parents because I definitely wanted to make sure that I got it right. I wanted to make sure that I came across with eloquence, with clarity, and to make sure that my parents could come to me to ask me any questions about trans people or what being transgender, you know, was. And even when I came out to my parents as gay, 
one of the things that they told me was just like, I accept you being gay, but I would, what I would not accept is you wearing like makeup and dressing like a woman. And, you know, that is also very telling of how misogynistic, uh, you know, parents, you know, the Latin culture just, is. Exa- exactly. That mentality of like, yes, you can be gay, but you cannot be femme. Yeah. Which is also that same mentality that, uh, as we discussed earlier before, is also very prevalent in the gay community. Very much How so. sort of, yeah, how sort of like you're made to think that like, yeah, you can be gay, but you cannot be femme yeah. at all. In the no Latin way. community, I, I found that there is this misconception that if you're gay, that equates to you wanting to be a woman. Mm-hmm. And there's this stigma which also goes to tell you, why do you view women so poorly? Why do you view women so less than? Since you mentioned Madonna earlier, there's a song she has, What It Feels Like for a Girl. And she says, it's okay for boys to wear, for girls to wear jeans, cut their hair short and dress like a boy. But if a boy dresses like a girl, you think it's degrading because you think that being a woman is degrading. And there is this misogynistic thing that we all suffer from some people might say, oh, Sergio is not masculine enough. And then I'm forced to fit into a category where I have to question who I am. And then I can look at someone, let's say a RuPaul's Drag Race contestant. I'm like, I'm not that queenie. So then now I have to make someone else be a villain or put someone down to try and rebuttal what they're saying to me. And that's something that the gay community really needs to figure out. And it's everywhere. It's being in LA has been really interesting being new. Uh, for one, I have body hair. It turns out in LA, people don't have body hair. So when I encounter people, they're like, ooh, look at you. And I'm like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, oh, they're not used to seeing this image. It's here. It's like this value of like, oh, you have a man's body. Uh, and I'm like, it's so interesting to see what is glorified, desired, admired, and then what's looked at and put as less than if you're not masculine, if you're not whatever, if you're not tall enough, if you don't have the perfect body. And Mm -hmm. it's like, we are, we're going to have a really difficult time. And that's why I think there's a lot of lonely gay men, because once you reach a certain age, it doesn't matter how well you're holding up. When you reach a certain age, you're not going to have those calling cards that you did in your twenties. And if you have nothing else to fall back on other than the fact that you have a hot body, good luck because a hot body will fade. I've seen it. It happens to everyone. Yes. I was like, <laughs> you're hitting all the points and you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people in the gay community, they get sort of sucked up into this mentality that you have to look a certain way to be desirable, to have a masculine body, to have a six pack, to be like mask and all these things. And, you know, something that I use that I still, you know, tell my my gay and uh, queer friends is that, you know, sometimes we get so wrapped up in this uh, sort of appearance uh, to be desirable that we sort of like ruin ourselves. And we, we you know, we, we sort of invite misery into our lives by, by not dating, you know, people because of, you know, because of the way that they look or by not dating people because, you know, they have femme energy or by not dating people because of their certain um, skin color. There are a lot of things within the gay community that need to be broken down deconstructed because a lot of it is very toxic. Yeah, the implicit bias that we all suffer from, the gay community is not taking the time to discover it. And again, don't get me wrong, tall, dark and handsome with a nice ass and a big dick, I am not gonna say no. 
But when that is the only standard of beauty, and that is the one thing that I sometimes find really saddening when I encounter people of color, whatever color that is, we have been brainwashed to believe that blonde, blue-eyed, it, it, it's beauty. Yeah. To the degree that when they look at themselves, they don't find themselves beautiful. And I'm yeah. happy that I have enough self-confidence or self-delusion that I like myself. Yeah. I find my features attractive. I find dark eyebrows, dark hair, tan skin. I find it sexy. Have I dated blonde, blue-eyed? Oh, plenty of them. I mean, I've dated everything. I've dated Latino. I've dated black. I've dated, I mean, I've, I've dated a lot. Let's just say that I've gone around the yeah. block on the <laughs> and in a lift. <laughs> yeah, in a but, lift. But the thing that I find sad is that so many people see that as the only standard of beauty that they don't recognize their own beauty. And that I think is unfortunate. Of course. In the gay and community. You know, as LGBT plus of color, it's, it's sort of like we should always strive uh, to normalize body hair, to normalize being short, to normalize dark hair, to normalize, you know, any other um, eye color that is not blue, to normalize, you know, um, a like a chubby dad bod body or, you know, just to not sort of fetishize any kind of body at all and I feel like we you know it's definitely our job I feel like a lot of the people especially in the Castro a lot of these people that want to attain sort of a partner that has that is tall that is blonde that it has blue eyes that has a six-pack a lot of that originates in whiteness a lot of that originates in Eurocentric qualities. And us, as Black and Brown LGBT people, we need to make sure that we fall in love with the qualities that are so prevalent in our bodies of being brown, of being short, of not being anything that I just mentioned, which is blonde, tall, you know, having blue eyes and all of that. And I, I think when we attain that and we, when we achieve that, it's going to be a beautiful thing yeah. to fall in love with people that look just like us. And that's actually exposure too. And, and I think when I see it, I mean, I dated a guy who was blonde, blue eyed and had an English accent, you know, and if he and I were anywhere in public and there was an Asian person, an Asian man around us, they were like beasts to honey. They would just gravitate to him instantly. A friend of mine who was Asian, he said, you know, the sad part is they don't care whether he's a good person, a bad person, taken or not, simply because mm-hmm. he's white. They're going Mm -hmm. and they're going to look. And I thought I never didn't think about it as much. And then later on, fast forward, we're at a, I think it was pride. And there was a white guy walking with the Asian male. And then my friend said, watch at one point, he's going to turn around, turn around and look at me on, on cue. The guy turned around and checked them out. He goes, it doesn't matter who he's with. The fact that I'm Asian, that's all he needs. Like he was willing to like try and look in my direction. And I bet you any other Asian guy that's going to walk by, he's going to look at them as well. So it's like, is he really interested in the person? No, just the fact that you're Asian. And now as a Latino, I've been many times I have guys come up to me. Oh, I love Latino men. And I'm like, okay, well, this is going nowhere. I'm off a preference because we have a preference, you know? Yeah. So, but it's this thing and the way it kind of moves in the gay community, it's your... If you don't fit that mold, you're not the standard. So that's already a problem in the gay community. Now you're walking in and you're like, you know what? I'm going to step it up a notch. I'm also going to be transgender. What do you find as far as transgender 
and being in the gay community, the standard gay lesbian world? You know, I, I, um, as you were talking, I definitely saw a lot of things that really resembled sort of the trans narrative. For example, I always um, tell this to my trans girlfriends as well, is that transitioning, especially being so young at this age, a lot of the girls that are transitioning, we get stuck in this perception of beauty. Trans women are one of the most beautiful people on this planet. And the thing is that a lot of us trans girls, we sometimes get sucked into this sort of um, mentality that everything around us and that we ourselves are defined by our beauty, that we ourselves are defined by how much we attract and how desirable we are to um, heterosexual men. I think that there is that that is a very toxic mentality that we still need to like deconstruct. And, you know, same thing for me. I do get a lot of, um, you know, men that sometimes go up to me and they're just like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm very into like trans women and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this and that and this and that. And before I would have been like, oh, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. And now I am just unfazed by this because, you know, now I'm just at a stage in my life where it's just like, I am much more than a fetish to men. You know, I am much more than this sort of like, perception of beauty I am like my own person I am a woman and I deserve respect just because of who I am you know and you know it's also you know something that is you know every community has its like downfalls and in the trans community is also very much in the way that you know appearance being tall being skinny being like light skin being like you know white the T is that a lot of white trans girls definitely do, you know, they do get most of the praise and the appeal and the desire, but they are still like black and brown trans women that are being discriminated against, that are being murdered because, you know, a lot of these women are seen as people that do not fit certain beauty standards. And we need to stop that. We need to well stop that. Yes. The, the thing too behind that is that where do you draw that line between pursuing this standard of beauty and also I I do not know because I'm not a a trans person, but the desire to, as they say, be passable, that someone can look at you and yeah. not clock and be like, oh wait, I yeah. used to be a dude or whatever. Yeah. So wh where is that line where you're like, am I trying to assimilate into what your standard of beauty is? Or do I just yes. want to walk into a room and have people see a woman and not see someone transitioning or have a negative yeah. connotation to, you know? Yeah. I am very glad that you asked this question because I have like struggled with this question so much. You know, some girls, some trans girls get praised because of how passable they are. Some cis women think that coming up to a, to a trans woman and saying, I didn't even notice. Oh my God, like you are just so passable. Baby, that is not a compliment. I am not striving to be passable. Um, you know, I am not striving to be a cisgender woman. And that's the thing about passing. You know, passing is only for the eyes um, of society. People think that when you're trans, you need to be digestible by other people. And that is not the thing. You know, passing shouldn't be sort of like, what is the, you know, finish line in the victory goal for trans women. If I do not pass, I am still entitled and I still deserve the same respect, the same dignity 
as any other person. Anyone who's not trans is not going to think about this. Just like a person who's not of color, they're not going to realize the challenges people of color have. But this thing of like, your goal is not to be passable. Your goal, you've phrased it in a way that it really spoke to me now, being that I'm getting old, I lost it. But it was, you know, you're, you're not sitting here trying to be passable. You are just trying to find the authentic version of yourself. And I think then we have the societal pressures of looking a particular way, because if you look quote unquote passable, you probably won't be harassed by men when you're walking home late at night. But if a guy, especially in the Latin community, if they see and they're like, wait, that's a dude or whatever, then you run the risk of being attacked. You're in danger. So there could be a, a benefit to being quote unquote passable. Yes, but that, you know, that is a very good question because I, I very much, I remember the day where I realized this myself. When I first started, I was a barista. So that meant that I used to get up very early in the morning, uh, get on the bus on the 14R. I do remember that when I first started transitioning, I would get looks because, you know, people obviously saw me as someone that did not pass, as someone that was obviously trans. But, you know, I still had stubble. You know, this was when I was still, um, you know, in the first few sessions of laser hair removal. And I do remember that, you know, as months went by and I was going through my, as, as I was going through my transition, it's sort of like, it, 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 it kind of hit me sort of like a truck when I realized that I passed. The moment that I realized this was when I started getting harassed by men for a whole different reason as to why I was being harassed the first time. And because of that, people sort of talking, um, they, they took approach in sort of harassing me in a way that was very misogynistic, in a way that was very sexist. And this is when I realized that passing is a double-edged sword. It's like, yes, you pass and you're no longer subject of sort of like ridicule. You're no longer subject of made, of being made fun of by, you know, people for not being cisgender. But when you pass, you are now subject of being harassed because you are a woman. And let's be clear about that. Women face um, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of harassment by men for how they look, by how, you know, by how sexualized they are, by how desired they are. And that's when it really hit me that, you know, as I mentioned, passing is a double-edged sword and I was no longer being subject of ridicule and was now being subject of sort of like misogynistic and sexual desire, Got which it. Now, is of course also very dangerous. Oh, I've, I've known plenty of beautiful women. I do not wish that on anyone. Just be a normal average looking woman because beautiful women, there's a lot of perks that come with beauty, but also a lot to deal with. When you finally realized, oh, as I'm learning about myself, I'm discovering that I'm now transgender. How did your parents take the news when you said, mom, dad, I've got another one for you. What was their initial reaction? I feel like I had a lot of discussions with my parents before coming out as transgender. When I mentioned before that through clothing and through fashion, I was able to express myself with my identity. Um, 
a lot of the fights and a lot of the conflict that I would have with my parents originated because of the fact that I would dress in women's clothing. And and the reason why I did is because I, you know, I felt more connected to it. I felt much more liberated by it. And I had many arguments with my parents about why I wore women's clothing. And I would just tell my parents, it's just clothes. It's just a form of expression. And it wasn't when I came out as trans that it's sort of like I connected. I sort of like connected as to why I used to wear women's clothing um, and why I was very feminine uh, to, you know, me being trans. And sort of like, I feel like my parents were somewhat confused for a lot of the time. Um, and it wasn't until that I came out as trans and that I explained to them because, you know, I really took my time to research and to make sure that I had all the right words to explain to my parents in Spanish, um, you know, what being trans was about, you know, and, and it wasn't there that I sort of was really honest with my parents. And to be honest, my relationship with my parents got better when I came out to them as trans, which is, you know, sometimes I feel very, um, I feel very guilty for saying this because I do know that a lot of trans girls, a lot of trans people do not have a very stable, a very loving relationship with their parents after coming out as trans. And I consider myself one of the lucky ones because, you know, my parents were very receptive and my parents were able to come around and really accept me. And even till this day, my relationship with my parents keeps evolving. It keeps growing. And, you know, if I wouldn't have come out as trans, my, my relationship with my parents would probably would have died. When I was still grappling with coming to terms with me being trans, one of the things that I, I, I always used to think about to myself was, I'm going to need to leave my family behind because my family will never accept the fact that I am trans. And because I am trans, that means that I am going to live the rest of my life alone without any support without my mom, without my dad, without my extended family. And it was something that really weighed heavy on me, just thinking about the fact that I was going to be alone for the rest of my life. And it wasn't, and sort of like this mentality that I was like, you know what, I have everything to lose, but the most important thing that I have is myself. And I'm going to make sure that I am honest with my parents. And to be honest, I am very grateful that I was. And that I'm, I'm very grateful that I was transparent and that I was able to come across to them. And I did tell them, you know, I am going to be myself because I am, I am myself first before I am your child. And that's how it happened. And that's another thing that I think people who don't have to cross this bridge, whether it's coming out as gay or transgender, we run the risk of losing everything. Mm -hmm. you know, it's no different from the immigrant experience who leaves their surroundings, their network, their, their social network of, uh, and support. You run that risk that they're, they're not gonna accept you. And whether you survive that or not, the damage is always there. You may have the resilience to find a new family, to make your own family, which is what a lot of people in the LGBTQ community do, they find their, their families. And, but that damage is there because the job of a parent is to love you. So when you lose that, you have to build an armor that other people may not necessarily have. 
not to say that, you know, of course, parents are not perfect. So how are your parents now? Like you guys are good. They, they, they call you Jupiter, like everything's good. Oh, absolutely. My parents call me Jupiter. They're like, hey, girl, like, you know, this is my daughter. My mom loves to comment on my pictures on Facebook. And she's like, girl, you look beautiful. I love it. You, you just look just like me when I, you know, when I was your age. So my parents have been very supportive and they continue to be very supportive right now. Sort of like my parents are leading the way. Um, because right now I'm currently in the process of talking to my extended family, my extended family that is in Mexico. So, you know, for me, it's a little bit, you know, difficult to sort of like get a hold of them and really come across to them. And my parents are the ones, they are the ones that are leading sort of like that path. And I'm just very grateful to them because they, you know, they continue to stand up for me. And I am very, you know, I am very proud of them that they've come such a long way. Um, and even my mom, you know, my mom, um, as I mentioned in the other episode, you know, my mom was really a victim of a lot of abuse and a lot of like, you know, being tossed around and being pushed to do things that she didn't really want to do. And my mom really made, um, you know, a 180. She really sort of like embraced change. She really... Uh, became a person that she never was in regards to, you know, being more open minded and, you know, being more kind and mean born and being more accepting. So I am very proud of them because they have changed with me. And it's something that I am very proud of. And, you know, I want to make sure that I that I plug in a book. It's called uh, Cuentamelo. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Uh, so Cuentamelo, it is um, an oral history of LGBT immigrants. It is by Juliana Delgado Lopera. Cuentamelo, um, tell me about it, right? That would yes. be the proper translation. Yes, um, it's called Cuentamelo, Testimonios de Inmigrantes Latinos, LGBT. So and uh, tell me about it, testimony of Latin immigrants, LGBTQ Latin immigrants. Yes, one of the special uh, people that I remember from that book is Adela Vasquez. She was a transgender woman from uh, Cuba. She still is because she is still alive. And she resided in San Francisco during the late 1970s and 1980s. Reading this book really made me uh, realize that these trans women fled their homes because of violence, because of not being accepted, because, you know, they were scared of what their lives would be like were they to have been forced to live their lives as men. These women had no access to healthcare and they were subjecting themselves to hormones, to medications that really damaged their bodies. And in most cases, they a lot of them died because they were putting stuff in their bodies that were very toxic. They were taking these hormones because it was their only way to be in touch to womanhood. Being trans, it's, it's incredibly important to have access to healthcare. And I've also been incredibly lucky and blessed to have access to healthcare, but there are a lot of trans women that do not have access to healthcare. And that is also, it also intersects to our conversation about passing. And, you know, sometimes a lot of trans women, you know, they, they aren't able to pass because they do not have access to healthcare. They do not have access to estradiol, which is, you know, estrogen, which is what they give you when, you know, you start transitioning. Trans women need healthcare to, you know, embark on this uh, journey towards gender affirmation. Yeah, no. And I think another thing, again, if you're an able body, not transgender, 
you don't recognize the the importance of having adequate medical care and people that can actually help you and make this journey a bit easier because it's not an easy journey to begin with. So when you finally realize yourself that you were transgender, what was the next step? What is the step that a transgender person takes at that point? You mentioned you were taking hormones. There, it's it's absolutely possible to be trans and to not take hormones. You know, that that is a thing. And it is absolutely possible to be that. When I realized that I was trans, I was lucky enough to have access to healthcare. And for me, uh, I definitely made the decision as in like, hey, um, I am I am transgender. I am a trans woman. And I am lucky enough to have access to healthcare. And, you know, there are a lot of trans girls, a lot of people like me that are also trans, but do not have access to healthcare. And, you know, that really made me, um, it really sort of like pushed me to uh, start my transition and take hormones and, you know, medically transition. And I was able to do that because I had access to healthcare, which is, you know, it's very important. And so there's an expression I had not heard before. One, you transition when you come to terms with the fact that you are a transgender individual, but then there is a process of medically transitioning, which is taking hormones to suppress certain things and make other things come out. So the hormones stop the facial hair. What does it do exactly? The first two years of transitioning is you experience and undergo fundamental and monumental changes. Your body starts to change, which is probably something that I have really enjoyed myself. Your skin softens, your body, you know, really changes in a way that like you develop more curves and a way that like your breasts really start to develop. Body hair still happens, you know, you still grow a beard, even if you're, you know, if you start taking hormones, but of course it's not as coarse, it's not as thick. I definitely would say that the most visible changes that are to your body, just everything changes. And I always tell this to all my friends for my family it's a beautiful process and it's a process that I really cherish and that I really value and that I am glad that I am going through is there a point that once you continue doing this process where you have to I've heard of the expression feminizing the face yes feminizing the face um there is this thing called FFS which is facial feminization surgery not all trans women I get it you know a lot of trans women do get it but yes um, FFS, um, it sort of um, softens your jaw. It sort of like shaves your chin. It rises your brow bone. It sort of like brings your hairline down a little bit more because, you know, some men have receding hairlines. It also manifests in, um, in the nose. Um, also, something that I got just recently for FFS was a tracheal shave, meaning that I shaved down my, um, my Adam's apple. I am also very lucky enough to have very feminine and features. So I did not get other things on my body or on my face because I really didn't need it. Uh, Some trans women undergo sort of the reconstruction of the eyebrows, the nose, the eyelids, uh, sort of like the gap between the nose and the lip, the lips themselves, uh, the chin, the jaw, the cheekbone. So there's definitely a lot. A lot goes into that um, surgery and it's quite scary. Um, It is something that a lot of trans women go to to have gender affirmation and to see themselves the way that they feel. So they basically pull a Khloe Kardashian. Oh yeah, girl. They they reconstruct your whole face. And in a way too, I mean, obviously if you have the money for that, great. You have access to be passable. You're going to deal with less judgment from society. 
but you open the box of being harassed by men. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is that. And do you have a map for yourself of what your next step is, what you'd like to do for your transition? Yeah. So, you know, the most recent thing that I got was the trichial shave, as I mentioned, where I shaved down my Adam's apple. I am currently in the process of um, bottom surgery, vaginoplasty, and it is a very long process. Vaginoplasty involves a lot of different steps. And for me, I started this process a couple months ago. One of the first steps that I must get is genital laser hair removal that definitely goes on for months and months and months. And you cannot get vaginoplasty until you get um, genital laser hair removal because it is incredibly crucial that no hair grows inside of your vagina, right? Also, not to mention painful, laser removal in your pubic area. And I know it's oh, not a yeah. one-time candy stop. You have to go multiple times. Ouch. That's, I don't even oh, do yeah. waxing. But you know what? They, they give you a numbing cream. Better knock me um, out. Yeah, lather all of it. Um. <laughs> That's something the average person would not know. In order for you to have a gender reassignment, especially going from male to female, is that you have to remove your all your pubic hair. You have to get rid of it to ensure that accidentally you don't grow the hair inside. Exactly. And you know, this process is incredibly expensive. Oh, yeah. A lot of trans people that don't live in very affluent cities like the coast, a lot of trans people that live in the South, a lot of trans people that live in the Midwest, they do not have access to this. And a lot of these people, you know, they, they, they are subjected to live lives where they sort of like, they do not have access to laser hair removal. They do not have access to get vaginoplasty. And it is a financial issue. And it's also an issue of of, you know, of where you are located. And, you know, something that I also wanted to talk about is I recently got my name and gender change. Guess how much you have to pay for a name and gender change application? $800. $500, girl. Oh. Plus, you need to pay for certified copies of the, of the judge order. You know, that is the order where the judge signs and you're like, yes, you have been approved to have this new name and this gender marker on your ID. You are all set to go. Anyway, what in was total your... for the entire process is close to $1,000. And wow. if you do not have access to this, if you do not have the funds to follow through with this, you are absolutely hindered. Yeah. Because that means that you cannot get a license uh, with, you know, sort of like how you look like and who yeah. you are. You cannot get a job because that means that when you apply to a job, your ID is going to look different than who you, you know, than what you are peer. So there are many hurdles for trans people that do require money. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I, I want people to be aware of this, that, you know, trans people are sort of, um, they are hindered by a lot of the institutions in place right now. That's um, something that I think a lot of people, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you as well is that if you are not around trans people, all you know about trans people is what you see on TV. But when you exactly. actually get to hear a person's story and journey and the struggles they encounter, obviously to me, having an ID is not a big issue. I look like my ID, I don't need to do anything else. But for someone who is transitioning, you know, if you've transitioned enough, and you get pulled over and you look, you present female and your ID says Edward, that's going to open the door to a lot of uh, danger, potential harassment. Uh, if you don't mind, what was your name prior to Jupiter? It, well, you know, it, it is something that I don't like to share often, but it was um, it, you, you Jesus, don't, it's like, you know, Jesus Christ. <laughs> of course. 
Uh, and you know, it's funny because I had this conversation about my mom with my mom that I wanted to get my name and gender change. Um, and I was just like, you know, mom, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, change my name. And m- my mom, the reason why she named me Jesus was because she said that I would always be blessed by God. When I told my mom that I was going to change my name, she really took it as something that was offensive. She was just like, oh, so you're anti-religion, you're anti-God. And I really had to sit down with her and and explain to her, you know what, just because I am changing my name from something that is biblical to something that is not, does not mean that I do, you know, does not mean that I do not believe in God any less. Yeah. Um, and it was really that conversation that really made her understand that it, it, it had no connection to sort of like how she sort of um, viewed me. And you know what, I also, I gave my mom the opportunity to give me a middle name, because I wanted her to be a part of me renaming myself. I really knew that she really took pride in, you know, having the choice of naming me. And I wanted to give her that same opportunity for now, you know, my new name. What's your middle Um, name? I do not have a middle name. She did not want to give me a middle name. She was just like, well, I don't know what goes with Jupiter. And how did you choose Jupiter? You know, I've always, I've always loved astronomy. I've always loved space and the stars and the planets and the solar systems. And, you know, my favorite movie is Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. If you have not seen Interstellar, please do so. It's one of the best movies of all time. Is that what that hot guy, what's his name? Matthew McConaughey. Oh, he's in it? I don't know. I mean, he's on too. I wouldn't kick him out of bed, but okay. (laughs) Go into a little section where I'm going to ask you rapid fire questions and you give me the answer that comes to you at the top of your head. Yes. Something most people don't know about you. I am a great cook. What are three things on your bucket list? I want to go skydiving. I want to travel to Europe and I want to go on a cruise. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? I really want to go to Latino America. Uh, describe yourself in three words. I am witty. I am funny. And I am dramatic. Describe the perfect kiss. The in perfect three words. kiss. In three words. In three words. Slow, tender, passionate. Do you have a song that reminds you of a relationship? If so, what song? Honestly, I do not. I, I I don't attach my my musical preferences to the rejection of men, but that's okay. <laughs> to yeah. the rejection of men. I love it. <laughs> yes. What, what is the thing you're most afraid of? I am afraid of deep waters, which is why I, I want to say that I want to go on a cruise because I, I really want to conquer that fear. What is the most delightful word you can think of? If you were running for office, what would be your campaign slogan? Lead with kindness. What have you done that you are most proud of? I mobilized thousands of voters to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And that is something that I am extremely proud of. And it's something that's going to remain at the top of my list for quite some time. Excellent. Well, thank you for being involved and helping get the word out. Because I firmly believe that if everyone in this country did their work, registered and voted, we can change our political landscape in one election. Exactly. Uh, But you know, it's easy to, um, it's easy to control a stupid uh, society. So people know more about the Kardashians that they know about their local elect uh, city, their governors, their mayors. And it's really unfortunate. Yes. 
take some time. So thank you so much, Jupiter, for joining us once again. I really appreciate your uh, sharing your journey. And again, this is one person's journey, just like my coming out story was one. Some people are fortunate that they have loving relationships with their parents, but a lot of gay people do not. And they're rejected and they're kicked out and they're, you know, there's a high homeless uh, gay population that's out there because these poor kids were thrown out and they have no choice but to sell their bodies and do things that they probably would have never considered. So it's easy to look at that cracked out kid in the corner selling himself. And we neglect that this kid is probably traumatized. And this is the best he can do considering that situation. So thank you for sharing your story. And I'm, I'm really happy to hear that your parents were uh, so supportive and are supportive and that they're along for the journey and that you are you know, you're being yourself because at the end of the day, that's all we want. And then we want others to see us for who we are. So thank you so much for doing this. Yes. And two more years, we have to vote all over again. And I'm sure we'll be involved in that as well. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, I, I also want to thank you, Sergio. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to, you know, say my story and uh, speak my mind. I also want to thank everyone that is listening. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, never give up. There is hope. And keep on fighting, uh, be the best that you can be, lead with kindness and fight for what you believe in and to a brighter future for all of us. Dang. When in doubt, spit it out. <laughs> yes. All right, bye Jupiter, thank you. Thank you everyone, <laughs> goodbye Sergio. have a good night. You too. <laughs> we all have a story. What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours?